story of Jesus' birth is beautiful and heartwarming, to be sure. But it also has a dark side. And that dark side is introduced in the very first verse of the second chapter of Matthew. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, before that sentence, the story is as sweet and inspiring as a Hallmark card or a Norman Rockwell painting. But after that sentence, it's as bloody and terrifying as any R-rated Hollywood thriller. Those two words, King Herod, are the ones that change everything. He steps into the story and turns it on its ear because he goes all out to try to kill the baby Jesus, whom he felt was a threat to his throne. That's why in the file drawer of your mind, you probably have King Herod in a folder right next to Adolf Hitler, Jack the Ripper, Osama bin Laden, and many others. Everybody, even people who don't know much about the Bible, they hear the name, everybody considers King Herod to be one of the worst people who's ever lived. What you may not know is why he was such a monster. I think we can sum it up in three words. He was paranoid. Let me see if I can explain why. It all starts with the fact that King Herod's job was purely political. Rome was in power at that time, and they needed... Uh, somebody in Jerusalem to kind of enforce the Roman law and keep the Jews in line. And so they appointed Herod to that position and dubbed him the king of the Jews. It was a highfalutin title that fed Herod's ego. He was thrilled to have it. But again, it was a purely political appointment. And if you watch the news very much, you know what happens to political appointees. It was no different then than it is now. Political appointees are the first ones to get blamed and fired when things don't go well. No president, no king, no emperor is going to fire himself. Uh, he's going to fire a minion, an underling. And in fact, in ancient Rome, they didn't fire you, they executed you. So think about it. Herod knows that if he messes up, he's toast. He also knows and understands the cold reality that all politicians face, and that is that there are always people lurking in the wings who would love to have your job. People who would love to see you fail. People who would love to help you fail. Does that sound familiar? So this was the first reason why he was paranoid. The second thing was the fact that his subjects, the people he was ruling over, the Jews, couldn't stand him. For one thing, he had that title, the king of the Jews, and that really irked him. Um, if you know anything about Jewish uh, national pride in the first century, you know that they took it very seriously. And in their minds, if you were only half Jewish, you weren't really Jewish at all. Even worse was the fact that Herod was cruel and merciless in the way he taxed the people. 
he uh, had to come up with a certain amount of tax, re tax revenue to please the folks back in Rome. Uh, and so that ensured that taxes would be high anyway, but he added to it. He taxed them even more so he could line his own pocket. And of course, uh, that enraged the people. The bottom line uh, is that Herod knew there were rival politicians who, who wanted him gone. He knew the people ruling over him couldn't stand him. And um, that, friends, is a prescription for paranoia. Or maybe he wasn't paranoid. You know, they say it's not really paranoia if everybody really is out to get you. Either way, it's the reason why Herod became so incredibly ruthless. When you believe that everybody around you is against you, really the only way you can survive, the only way you can protect yourself is by just crushing everybody around you who kind of even smells like a little bit of trouble. That would explain why Herod had one of his wives executed and two of his sons and two of his brothers-in-law. Five members of his family he had executed. It was said in those days that the most dangerous thing you could be was a relative of Herod. He also executed the high priest. He executed several other priests. He ran his kingdom like a police state. Look at this statement from Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, scarcely a day passed without an execution under Herod's regime. The political climate at that time of Jesus' birth resembled that of Russia in the 1930s under Stalin. Citizens could not gather in public meetings, and spies were everywhere. Which brings us to the arrival of Jesus. I'm going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 2 at verse 1. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now look at this line. It says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. And there you see, the paranoia that, that I've been talking about. All it took was the rumor of a newborn baby that might someday be a rival for his throne, and Herod was immediately shaking in his sandals. Uh, it says he was deeply disturbed there in verse 3. The same word disturbed there is used over in Matthew 14, 26, only there it's translated terrified. Herod was terrified. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. He was terrified of a baby? Seriously? I mean, how long is it going to take this baby to grow up and actually become any kind of a serious threat to Herod? About 20 years, maybe? And Herod's not even going to be alive in 20 years. And that just gives you an idea of how pervasive his paranoia was. How all-consuming he immediately went into panic mode just at the thought of a baby being born somewhere that might someday, a generation from now, be a threat. So the first thing he did was to try to locate the baby Jesus by manipulating the wise men, Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and learned from them 
the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. A big lie. He didn't have any intention of worshiping the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And that's why God warned the wise men not to report Jesus' whereabouts. Um, and that was a move that only served to enrage Herod even more. Verse 16 says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. I once heard it said that when Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to the cross, that was when the human race hit rock bottom. If that's true, then I think this has to be just one step up from that. It is hard for me, and I know it is for you, it's hard for me to wrap my head around what happened. To picture soldiers going from village to village house to house, murdering babies, running them through with a sword. How do you make sense of that? What's really sad is that though King Herod is long dead, his spirit is still alive and well today. There are still people and organizations who hate Jesus so much that they are willing to try to do anything they possibly can to eliminate his influence in this world. We read about martyrs around the world. Um, I know I've read that in some places in this world, the most dangerous thing you can be is a Christian. It's impossible to come up with an accurate number. I did extensive research on this as I was preparing this message. And the problem is there are so many organizations that track these kinds of things, and, and they all have different numbers, and you really don't know who's right. But I did see one report um, that as many as 90,000 people a year worldwide are murdered for no other reason than that they are Christians. Here in America, there are church shootings. There are physical attacks against Christians, um, obviously becoming more and more common. But there are also nonviolent attacks that never make the headlines. You don't hear about these things, but they're happening all the time, and they have an impact. Uh, for example, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, remember that, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, is a non-theist organization. By the way, that's their term. That's what they call themselves non-theist, we would call them atheists, uh, but the, it's a God-rejecting organization that goes around looking for ways to remove any vestige of God or Christ or any kind of Christian thought from the public arena. For example, if they find any kind of cross or religious monument on public land, they will sue to have it removed. If they find a public school teaching any kind of religion class, uh, even if it's not Christian, even if it treats all religions equally, they will sue to have that class removed and discontinued. 
If they find any government-funded institution that has a chaplain, they will sue to have that chaplain removed. If they find a school that has a prayer at its commencement exercises, they will sue to have that prayer discontinued. If they find a city government that sponsors a National Day of Prayer ceremony, they will sue to have that ceremony discontinued. This is the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I encourage you to look up their website. All of the things I just read to you come right off the front page of the website. This is what they do. And they will give you also a list on their website of all the lawsuits that they're currently involved in to try to remove Christ from the public arena. As I was thinking about all of this and preparing this message, I remembered something the Bible says in two or three different places. David says it in the Psalms, and, and uh, Jesus himself reiterates it in John 15, 25. But the statement is this. Jesus would be hated without cause. He would be hated without cause. Of course, we know that's true. Jesus never did anything to deserve this hatred. He, he never mistreated anybody. He never hurt anybody. He never oppressed any people group. And yet, he is hated probably more than any figure in all of history. And we ask ourselves, why? Why do people hate Jesus so much? And I wrestled with this question, thinking about it as I was writing this sermon, and it finally dawned on me that Jesus gave us the answer himself. The verse is John chapter 7 and verse 7. Jesus says, the world hates me because I accuse it of evil. Because I accuse it of evil. And I thought, wow, isn't it great how Jesus just cuts through all the confusion and gets right to the heart of the matter? Because I'm thinking about why do people hate Jesus? And I'm thinking there must be all kinds of social and psychological and spiritual factors that play into it. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I wonder if it's, you know. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 it's not that complicated. People hate me because I accuse them of evil. People hate me because I tell them what they're doing is wrong. I think, yeah, that's it. It makes perfect sense. Because if you think about it, if there's one thing people hate, it's to be told they're wrong. And sometimes they hate it so much that they lash out. The next time you're watching the news or reading the newspaper and you see a report about a, a shooting or a stabbing, or some other uh, spontaneous eruption of violence, listen very carefully, or read the article very carefully, and there's a good chance that you will read somewhere in that article that there was an argument going on. And what is an argument? An argument is two people telling each other they're wrong. People hate to be told they're wrong. Sure, Jesus was kind and gentle. But he also called people to a different way of living. He told them a lot of what they do, were doing, a lot of what they were thinking was wrong. He was even bold enough to tell some of them that they were hypocrites. And that, my friends, is what earned him so many enemies. And it's why people hate his church today. Because we don't buy into half of what the world is trying to force down our throats. 
We point to the words of Jesus and we say, no, we don't believe what you're saying. We believe what Jesus is saying. And suddenly their hatred of Jesus begins to spill over onto us. And Jesus knew it would be this way. That's why he said to his disciples, if the world hates you, just remember it hated me first. The reason people hate you, the reason people hate us, the church, is because they hate Jesus. And since Jesus isn't here in the flesh to absorb the wrath of his enemies, that hatred is going to be for you and me. It's going to spill over onto those of us who are the body of Christ. We are his representatives. We wear his name. We are his family. We are his servants doing his work. And if they hated him, they're going to hate us. But the biggest problem is we agree with what he said. And so when he says that a certain lifestyle choice is wrong, and we say, yes, we agree with that, then they hate us for it. When we say, we stand with Jesus, we are immediately hated by the world. Again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, preacher, thanks for the uplifting message today. I haven't felt this warm and fuzzy since I got my last root canal. I understand. A lot of what I'm talking about here is very depressing and upsetting and discouraging. And you know, a lot of people don't even like to read the Herod part of the Christmas story. I've had families tell me over the years, that when they sit down with their families at Christmas time and read the Christmas story out of the Bible with the kids, they skip over it. I would simply say this to you. Don't forget the title of this message. It's not Jesus killed. It's not Jesus murdered. It's not Jesus assassinated. It is Jesus protected. The reason you and I have any reason to meet here today is because Herod failed. He was not successful in his attempt to kill the baby Jesus. And the reason he was not successful is because Almighty God intervened and protected his son. And I will tell you something. All the King Herod wannabes in this world, all these people who have all these plans, all these people who have all these, these ideas that they're going to stop the church, all these people that, with their diabolical little lawsuits that they think is going to silence the gospel, they are going to fail. And I'm not saying that we won't suffer. I'm not saying that we won't be persecuted. I'm not saying that we don't need to be vigilant and, and to fight against those who are trying to marginalize the Christian community. What I'm saying is that when all is said and done, Jesus Christ is going to stand victorious over his enemies. All the hate, all the plots and schemes, all the psychological warfare, all, all this stuff that's being employed to try to, to, to undermine the kingdom of God is going to fail. And I, and I want to show you a verse out of the book of Isaiah. So many great messianic prophecies, so many things that, that, that the Old Testament teaches us about the future. But, but I want to show you Isaiah 29 and verse 8. This is so cool. It says, a hungry person dreams of eating, but wakes up still hungry. A thirsty person dreams of drinking, but is still faint from thirst when morning comes. Now listen. 
so it will be with your enemies, with those who attack Mount Zion. You know what he's saying there? Isaiah is saying, look, all you enemies, all you enemies of the faith, all you enemies of God, here's what I know. You can dream about destroying what God is doing, but when you wake up, we're still going to be here. I love how he just, he just says to all the enemies of God, in your dreams. You think you're going to put an end to Jesus? You think you're going to thwart God's plan? You think that by persecuting His people, you're going to render the gospel powerless in your dreams? And this is why we have to keep reading the Herod part of the Christmas story. Don't leave it out. It's one of the most powerful aspects of the story because we get to see Almighty God rising up and crushing the opposition. And we need to be reminded of that in this day and age. There was an elderly man, poor man, sat on a park bench every day with his Bible feeding the birds. One day he was sitting there and a college student came up and sat down beside him. This college student was an atheist. He looked at the old man's Bible. He thought, I'm going to have a little fun here. And he said to the old man, you like that book? The old man said, yeah, it's my favorite book. I love this book. And the college student said, so what's the big deal about that? What do you read in that book that's so important? The old man thought for a moment and he said, God wins. And the college student said, are you serious? Can you really look at the world and what's going on all around us? and really believe that God wins. And the old man said, well, I don't know. He said, when I start reading at the beginning of the book, I see God's in charge. And when I finish reading at the end of the book, I see he's still in charge. So that tells me there ain't nobody in the middle that's big enough to whoop him. This morning, I hope that's what you take home from this message. A sense of peace and joy that comes from knowing that when all is said and done, even when all the Herods and the horrors are unleashed against God and His people, when the whole story of this planet has been written, those of us who belong to Christ, 